Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Softworks Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Hello. Yes, my name is uh, Khalid Javed. I'm an assistant professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. Uh, there, I direct the Structures Computer Interaction Laboratory. And in our laboratory, our focus is primarily on structural mechanics. We try to develop new materials, new structures. And one of the main areas of application of these uh, smart structures and materials is robotics. And soft robotics is probably one of the main projects that we are working on right now. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jonas. Thank you. Uh, I would like to go back on your child. Do you have any memory that triggered your interest in science or technology that makes you where you are today? I think working with Legos and building tanks uh, that was uh, probably something that that got me interested in in building things. Now that that was when I was a kid, like when I was really young. Then later on, as I got to uh, explore a bit more in college, I became more and more interested in uh, things like computer programming and numerical simulation. Mm-hmm. So I slowly started to become more of a software person than a hardware person. Right now in our lab, we work on both software and hardware, but uh, our our focus is mainly on numerical simulations. Mm. And when it comes to software, I used to participate in things like online programming contests, you know, where you can uh, go and upload your solution and see whose execution time is the least. So it, it was fun experience, but eventually, uh, when I went to grad school, this is something like programming is something that, that I have to actually do for my research. So my hobby eventually became my profession. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, so if I ask you, what is the first uh, robot or soft robot you built? I think that's something recently you have been working and integrating your skills in hardware. So mm-hmm. what's the first soft robot or robot you build and what feeling yeah, do you have? I- Mm-hmm. So, so when it comes to uh, robots, I think, well, I, I grew up in Bangladesh and it's, a, it's not a developed country. And when I was in high school, we of course didn't have access to robots and we weren't able to play around with ro- robots. Even till this day, even in developed countries, you know, like robots are not something that's commonly available in schools. And that is something that should change. But when, it, when I went to the University of Michigan for my um, undergraduate degree, I was involved in the Mars rover team. So that team uh, is working on, was working on building an autonomous ro- robot for exploration, of, to, explore the, to, to explore Mars, basically. Mm. And uh, I wouldn't say again that I, I built it my, myself. I was in a larger team and my role was mainly in softwares and controlling the robot and and trying to make it uh, we were trying to make it a lot more autonomous so that's the first uh robot that i can think of that i was involved with mm-hmm. great so now I, I would like to go to soft robotics so how you would mm-hmm. define soft robotics from your work you have been doing lately yeah so that's the source you're asking about the definition of soft robotics and uh, surprisingly, different people will answer differently, and I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, in my humble opinion, though, I define soft robotics a lot more broadly. So in my view, soft robotics is any robot that has structure or material that is deforming. So uh, traditionally, we think of soft robotics as a subset of the overall conventional robotics field. However, if you look at uh, any robot that is working in the factory or that is you know, that is being used in agriculture or wherever, even those robots will have 
springs and hinges and so on that will actually also deform so i would think that those are also uh, in a sense those are also soft robots so instead of thinking of soft robotics as a subset i will think of soft robotics as a superset however colloquially though when we say this is a soft robot we think that this robot will have uh, most of the structures and materials in that robot would be soft and flexible so when it is moving when the robot is moving or when the robot is functioning uh, its structure is is deforming and uh, to be more rigorous i would define a soft robot as a robot whose material is undergoing some type of strain when it is functioning mm-hmm. interesting so so if i ask you what is the area or maybe direction of research in soft robotics you think very promising but maybe the community seem disagree i, I would think so in, in, in my view there mainly two ways i think soft robotics is progressing right now one is material and and so coming up with novel materials and novel structures and novel actuators and the second one is uh, modeling uh, so mm-hmm. numerical simulation of these materials and structures and eventually if you put these thing put these two things together you can you know, hopefully get fully autonomous robots that can be uh, self sustaining Now I think uh, we have been doing very well in material side so there have been a lot of new inventions and discoveries and coming up with uh, new materials like shape memory alloy liquid crystal elastomer and so on however in the modeling side uh, I think we are lacking a little bit and mm. part of that has to do with is uh, conventionally we think of of materials as as uh, most of the studies that we have done with materials uh, had to do with metals and concrete and, and and these common materials that are used to build bridges and buildings but now in soft robotics we are using more and more so called smart materials or meta materials and so the definition of material is actually uh, becoming a bit more so that the well i should rather say the distinction between the material and the machine is becoming more and more blurred and in fact there's a really interesting paper that is on science or nature i, I forgot but one of those two journals the title of the paper is the material is the machine and the authors are uh, kaushik patacharya and dick james mm. so because these materials are really interesting uh, i think they're posing new and new challenges for us to to model them Okay, that's very important point. I would like to stop here for the modeling. You sure. see a very important point about that. We lack the, the maybe a lot of detailed work for modeling. And the first question is, how how do you think the right approach for modeling soft robotics? It is in maybe in continuum scale, or we have to go to microscopic scale to understand how this material behave. That's first question. Mm-hmm. Um. this again i think some like you know, some people might disagree uh, i just think that if we want to be application oriented if our goal is to have the soft robots uh, work in real life we should probably be a bit more pra- pragmatic and not think about the molecular interaction and the, you know the micron scale interaction in the material but rather we should take a more mesoscale or continuum scale approach and try to model these materials in a way that we can actually use them to design and control these soft robots so if i want to let's say so, so there are two things right one is designing and the other one is controlling so you design the robot then you build it so you fabricate that and then you after you have built the robot then you you uh, you, you try to control it so if i want to design it or control it the problem i have at hand is there are thousands and millions of different ways i can design and control these structures and in in this case the structures of soft robots so where's the best way of doing that uh this is where computer simulations can help 
instead of you know building thousands of different prototypes if i could simulate them in computer i could find out you know that's the best way of building this robot so we should build it this way now if i want to run like a thousands and millions of computer simulations i need to have my model robust and efficient enough that i can reasonably run them on on a on a, on a computer now of course you can say that you know we can use supercomputers and and uh, we want to simulate them from a uh, from a from micron scale and so on but that's not very realistic in my view we should be able to simulate these things in a contemporary desktop computer and this is where i think uh, we can take a bit more pragmatic approach and instead of trying to look at the molecular interaction and so on we can uh, model it from a continuum point of view Mm-hmm. That's also interesting perspective, but I'm still I'm still didn't get an answer for the modeling because, as far as we see that uh, the control techniques we use um, sometimes destroy the natural dynamics, and do you mm-hmm. think it comes down that we have to understand the morphology of the robot and what are the significant parameters that could say play a significant uh, significantly in the behavior of the robot before applying traditional control to the model we develop. So yeah, if I ask you what is the most important physical parameter, do you think you have to consider a model? Mm-hmm. I think uh, the traditional controllers that we use uh, in future, they will need to be adapted and improved to account for the sort of the nonlinear behavior that we see in, 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 in soft robots. So for example, in soft robots, uh, in, in our lab, we are working on robots that can change in its swimming direction by buckling stability in the mm. inner structure. Now, buckling is a sudden change or large deformation in the structure. And uh, and this type of sudden behavior is often oftentimes not compatible with, with traditional control approaches. So I... To be honest, I do not know. So, so there, there are two steps. One step is modeling it, and then the next step is to incorporate these models into controllers. So right now, I don't think we have we have really nailed down the modeling part correctly. Mm. Uh, we're still uh, we're still uh, exploring quite a few things, and. Uh, and especially when it comes to buckling stability or large deformation and slender structures, they are actually fairly not, they could be not trivial to, to model. So once we have really fast simulation tools that can uh, simulate these behavior with high fidelity, then I think uh, we should try to incorporate these things in controllers. Now, what the design of those controllers will look like uh, that only time will tell. I am I'm, I'm not so sure, and I'll, I'll I'll be very glad to work with you know like somebody in uh, somebody who is working in in controls to figure these things out. Mm-hmm. So back to your your work on simulation for soft robotics. There is a debate about how we can close this gap between what we have in simulation and what we have in real time as well. But one of the issue that sometimes is most of simulation or is simplified. For example, if you have viscoelastic material, you can't really capture the linear strain happening at the, at the first of the, just when you apply stress and then later on the viscous stress. So that's kind of behavior sometimes is, is tricky or maybe hard to mm-hmm. model in simulation. So yes. the first question is what makes what you did lately and, and real time computer simulation for soft robotics advantages to other techniques that we use. For example, because maybe now students listening to us to make, make it more clear, there's maybe mesh approach, approach like FEM that we know, and maybe material point method, and there's also molecular dynamics. So, so that's, that's the scale we have. So if mm-hmm. I ask you, you have this kind of material, high nonlinear material, what, mm-hmm. how, how you make sure that a simulation is closing the gap reality it, it, it is uh, I would think that that is one of the 
main obstacles to bringing soft robotics to real life like because uh, the materials are so complicated that modeling them um, is highly non-trivial and even if you can model them they don't oftentimes they will not match with with uh, with uh, the, the real the real robot now uh, there are primarily two reasons that like broadly speaking there, there are two reasons that we can think of why uh, a model will not match the experiments uh, one is if you have a viscoelastic material or some highly nonlinear material then you have so many material parameters that it's very easy to get some of them wrong. And even if you make like 1% or 5% error in each of these parameters, in measuring each of these parameters, you know, your model will actually can't predict uh, the dynamics of the whole structure wrong. Mm. And the second one is when the robot is interacting with the environment, uh, there is stochasticity in it. For example, there's friction, there could be aerodynamics, and uh, especially if I think of friction, it is extremely difficult to model friction because you know the, the friction is changing throughout the throughout the surface. So let's say I have a have a robot that is trying to move across a sandy surface or a granular surface, then the friction along the surface is is also changing. So now these are some of the questions that we are trying to address uh, right now. So I'll broadly kind of try to outline what are some of the things that we are trying to do. Mm-hmm. One of them is, let's say that I have a highly nonlinear model and we can think of using neural networks to think to, to as the model for these materials. And neural networks, they can capture highly nonlinear behavior and so they can be, as models for these materials, they can eventually be integrated into a numerical simulation. But then the question will be, how do I train these neural networks? So this is where some of the modeling techniques that you mentioned, things like finite element method or material point method, they can be useful. Molecular dynamics is probably going to be too expensive uh, given the computational resources that we have. But we have several techniques that can be used to model some of these materials and the neural networks can be trained on them. Another approach that can be even more promising is if I take the real material and try to do a lot of experimental mm-hmm. simulation. Mm-hmm. So if I take the real material and try to capture its behavior and then train a neural network based on the actual experimental behavior, then we can be more confident that my model is a, is a bit more robust and more predictive. Mm. And then second one will be so, so now let's say I have have uh, like have trained my material I have you know, have a neural network that is that is working as the material model we haven't done it yet but we're still working on that so let's say I have trained my material I have a model and the simulation of the robot now when it goes to the real world uh, is it going to match the experiments maybe maybe not the reason it may not match the experiments even after having an accurate material model has to do with the stochasticity of the environment so you know, I have friction I have hydrodynamics and so on and uh, the model of these things will also need to be incorporated in my simulation so one of the and this is where I think we can look out of uh, we can go outside mechanics and robotics fields and try to draw inspiration from uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. So there is a field called transfer learning where you where you learn a model and then you transfer that model to a similar physical system. So we can try to do something similar. We can try, I don't know if it will be successful, but to me this is very promising that we model the material and the whole structure using a numerical simulation and then as the robot is moving around, it is collecting data using sensors and so on. And it is using these data to update the model. So eventually in real time, the robot is improving its own model. So it is getting better and better at, uh, at locomotion. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so these are kind of like some, some I guess these are just some thoughts that we're still working on and you know, they may be successful, maybe not, but we'll see. 
Yeah, I have a question here, maybe argument as well, because when you sure. you have data driven modeling, so you for the for yourself robots, so it's mm-hmm. you had you had at the end of the day tailored model for certain structure, but if we because we have a problem sometimes in soft robotic about fabrication because we don't mm-hmm. have reproducible fabrication and sometimes it has a geometric play a significant role in the behavior. So do you think yes. when we come to design soft robotics, you want to design the recipe for soft robotics? Do, do you think that we need to describe physical parameter? For example, if we speak about smart material uh, like ionic conductive polymers, sometimes you want to see the relation between the strain and, and, the, and, strain and the electric energy you applied. And you have this coupling uh, parameter in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. But sometimes if you want to do a design recipe and you don't understand why this is happening, you have to go to develop a physical, uh, real, uh, physical coupling just based in physical model. I don't know what, you, uh, what you're thought about that. If you're going to identify some parameters from experiment, but it will be tailored. It will not be mm-hmm. a design recipe. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, so, so it, it almost is a, is a chicken and egg problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you, which one do you do first? Do you design the, uh, do you design the material in the simulation and then try to implement that in, in, in experiments, so then you try to build it? Or you try to build some material first and then model it and then build some more? I think, uh, honestly, I, I don't know if uh, we have, solve this problem. I mean, the most recent work that we did had to do with a rolling robot that is moving on frictional surface and shape memory alloy is used as one of the materials in that robot. And we we, we uh, simulated this robot using an effective linear elastic model. So we assumed that you know, stress is directly proportional to strain. Now, as we go farther into more and more advanced materials, it'll be challenging to 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 uh, to incorporate all of these things precisely enough into the model that I can build a design recipe. Yeah. And physics can help here for sure. So if I have a very good uh, physical understanding of what is going on in the in the material, then you know, I could definitely use this to come up with a, with a systems level model of the robot. Uh, but given the tools that we have at this point, uh, I think, you know, the, unfortunately, what we'll have to do is we'll have to uh, build some material first and look at its behavior and then try to come up with some empirical model in the simulation and then try to predict that this is going to be my optimal design of the material and then build that material, the optimal material that I have predicted from simulation and then see if it is matching my simulation or not. If it is not matching, then I have to say, okay, I'm probably missing some of the physical ingredients. So what is what are the things that are missing? So it'll be like an iterative process using which we will have to uh, we will have to keep updating. We do not have, I think at this moment, uh, like a one-shot recipe that I can use. So we don't have something, uh, some tools that we will use to simulate materials and structures, and that will give me a design recipe. Mm-hmm. And if I ask you, because you mentioned about buckling as well, and, and this question I first ask you, what kind of nonlinearity do you think we have to keep in soft robotics or soft robots, or we have to remove it? Some of them bring opportunities, but from your expertise, how you would see the nonlinearities in general in soft robot? Yeah, so it's a, a very good question. So traditionally, we think of buckling as something that we are trying to avoid. And when I was a PhD student, my PhD advisor uh, was kind of focusing on, on this concept that we traditionally think of using, traditionally we think of uh, buckling as a route to failure, but now we can uh, actively think about using buckling as a, as a functional mechanism. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the answer when to use buckling and when to avoid it is very 
uh, application specifics. So of course, we don't want buckling in bridges and buildings. However, let's think of let's think of another example. Let's think of bacterial flagella. So a bacteria, a bacterium typically has one or two helical corkscrew-like tails, and these tails are called flagella. There is increasing evidence, uh, even though I don't think it has been proven already, but there is strong indication that bacteria do use buckling in its tails to change swimming direction. And inspired by this natural phenomenon, we are trying to build robots that will use buckling and stability to, to change their swimming direction. Mm -hmm. so to give an analogy, it is almost like a car without any steering wheel. The only thing that we will need is the is the gas pedal. So just by changing the velocity of the tail, and by velocity I mean the rotational velocity, just by changing the velocity of the tail, we can try to control its swimming direction. And that, if successful, will be one of the simplest soft robots ever. And bacteria is uh, bacterium is also called as the most efficient machine in the universe. So in soft robotics, definitely, especially at micron scale uh, or millimeter or centimeter scale robots, where we want to keep the moving parts to a minimum, we want to have as little components as possible. In these cases, using buckling and other nonlinear phenomenon can be very useful. And this is where the distinction between the material and the machine is getting blurred because the material itself is behaving almost like an actuator. Mm -hmm. That's a, an interesting point. But I would like to go back again for um, um, for misconceptions about soft robotics. What could be misconception, mm -hmm. do you think? Uh, yeah. For example, sometimes that's something lately uh, we discussed in the podcast and how we can have soft robotics that have higher mechanical performance and also faster response time, how we can achieve also the behavior at the same time. Because sometimes mm -hmm. we have slow soft robotics and that's something, yeah. I don't know what you're thought about uh, having slow behavior and yeah, the trade-off is to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah so that, that, that is, uh, so, In a natural organism, like you know, typically, like let's think of more or less any organism, like humans or or mammals yeah. or other animals, they typically move at one body length per second. But even the fastest soft robots uh, actually don't move at one body length per second. So the new, the our most recent work um, that we published in Nature Communications, that robot was moving at about. Uh, half body length per, per second and so it is an active area of research and I think it, it, it is not a very easy challenge to solve um, there are at least two different I mean I, I can think of at least two different challenges one of them is the actuator the material response and the second one is the issue of payload or batteries so in in the first challenge which has to do with materials I think we are kind of improving with ship memory alloy, and that has more or less you know, faster response time. And we have shown that the ship memory alloy can be used to build robots that are reasonably fast and approaching the speed of, of natural organisms. However, if I want to make the robot fully uh, autonomous, it will need to have it will need to carry. Uh, batteries and processors and and, and and various other components. And if it has to carry that much load, then uh, the speed, of course, is going to go down. So when it comes to battery technology, I think there's a lot of room for, for improvement. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think still it's a challenge that I don't think it'll, it'll be solved in a, in a year or two. It'll probably take even even uh, longer. Yeah. I should also mention that recently there was a, there is a work coming out of uh, Harvard and some some other universities that I think where they used uh, 
they were able to get a solar powered flight of insect scale robots which i think was very promising however they still used like a higher solar energy by shining you know extra light onto the solar panels i think uh, so still it's not reaching the still it's not uh, rifling the performance of of birds and insects but still we are we are getting closer um, so our focus on in our lab though is you know, is probably uh, not so much on speed and uh, but rather more on making things simpler so how we can use buckling and so on to reduce the number of moving parts and soft robots and th that's like a different direction that we have taken but which i think is, is also promising mm -hmm. So if I ask you about numerical simulation for soft robotics, what, what could be the limitation you had already and the challenges? Because lately we know that that's a debate in the robotics field and time is they are some groups anti-simulation and they say that you have to deploy everything in real robot. So what's your take about that? The limitation and challenges and why it's important to dig deeper in developing robust numerical simulation for soft robotics? Yeah. To, to answer the last question first, that why it's important, um, the reason it's important is because we want to be able to design more functional and better soft robots, and then we want them to be, we want the robots to be autonomous. Uh, so we want to be able to control them, and the robots basically should be able to control themselves. And uh, in these two cases, uh, simulations can be very useful. When it comes to challenges, we already talked about some of the challenges in design and in, in, in modeling the material and so on. Uh, I'll try to break it down. And so a simulation can be broken down into mainly three parts. One is the material model. Number two is the geometry of the structure. And number three is the external forces. Mm -hmm. Even if I think of something as simple as hair, so my hair, if I want to describe my hair, I will have to talk about the length of the hair, which is the geometric part. I will have to talk about the material of the hair. Uh, hair can be reasonably uh, assumed to be linear elastic. So that's the material model. And third is the external forces. So for example, if I'm running in the wind, my hair is going to deform and it's going to flow. So the overall system is going to depend on these three components. So the when it comes to geometry part, we are very, uh, excited by the prospect of using uh, discrete differential geometry in capturing uh, the geometry of the soft robots. So discrete differential geometry is a subfield of geometry that studies the discrete analogs of smooth geometric objects like uh, lines and curves and mm. surfaces. But uh, this this discrete differential geometry has been used in the computer graphics community quite a lot in simulation of hair and clothes and far and other objects from movies. So, for example, our most recent work on robot simulation that used the simulation tool called uh, discrete elastic rods, and this simulation tool has been used in simulating hair and far of uh, characters in movies like. The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, and uh, we were able to use kind of the same techniques to capture the geometry of the of the soft robots. So th this technique essentially divides the robot into a bunch of springs and masses. Then I have to think about the material. So I have these. I have divided the robot into small components. Now I have to have to uh, capture the material of the of the have to capture the material behavior of these robots, and that's where the like one challenge will come in. And, and as uh, we talked about before, uh, using things like neural networks is promising, and we're exploring that right now. Kind of the structures that we have looked into, all of them are linear elastic. Uh, so we are trying to move into the domain of more complicated materials. And the third point is uh, the external forces. Now, it is actually a bit more complicated than it might seem. Mm. So the structure, for example, let's think of our hair again. The structure changes shape if there is external forces on it. So for example, 
uh, when I'm running in the wind, my the, uh, like wind is blowing past my hair that is exerting an aerodynamic force and that is changing the shape of the structure. However, how much force is getting applied on the structure depends on the shape. So that's why people spend a lot of time on, on designing the outer surface of a car or aircraft so that it is aerodynamically efficient. So there's a two-way coupling. The shape affects the, the external force. The external force affects the structure. Mm -hmm. And that makes the numerical simulation a little bit more complicated. However, we kind of know that if we can make the simulation fast enough, if it is not computationally too expensive, then we can reasonably capture this type of coupling. Now, when, even after I have captured coupling, the last remaining challenge is there is always stochasticity and randomness in the environment. And how to properly account for that so that my robot doesn't just fall, fall down or it just doesn't so so that it just doesn't stop working. For that, I think we have to integrate modeling with control. And when we go to that level, we will have to start working with uh, the controls community to come up with better and more robust methods of controlling these things. Mm -hmm. But even then, I would say that there's some techniques in reinforcement learning in the machine learning community that has been Oh, very promising. For example, you know, computers or AI agents can be trained to play video games, and they actually have shown superhuman performance. So maybe we can use some of those tools where the AI where the AI agent is controlling the characters in the video game. We can take those tools and try to have the AI agent control the actual robot and see how well it does. Mm -hmm. I think you said a very interesting point in terms of, uh, you mentioned about the geometry of software modeling. Sometimes it's not trivial to calculate shape, like for example, in fabric, knitted yarn or S-shape. So it is really complex and that's a good point to have. But do you think there's opportunity also for generative design for software robotics? You mentioned the example of the hair and you have to see how the external force affecting on the geometry. When it comes to design, do you think there's opportunities to also apply machine learning for design, coming up with the optimum design? Yeah, yes. So uh, we, we can think of design. So any design is really an optimization problem, right? That, you mm -hmm. know, I have to have a bunch of parameters and then I'm trying to search the parameter space and find out which parameter set is giving me the, the best speed or most efficiency. Mm -hmm. and. Typically, there are two ways of doing that. One is sort of a gradient-based approach. So I have a function. That function represents the performance of the robot. And if the that function is differentiable, uh, then I can you know, use the gradient of that function to kind of follow the searched path. And I'm speaking very qualitatively. And when it comes to soft robots, uh, the problem is oftentimes that there is buckling and there is nonlinear behavior and uh, there are like so many different uh, physical parameters that these traditional gradient-based optimization techniques uh, don't work. So in this case, definitely we can try to borrow tools from uh, the machine learning and artificial intelligence community, uh, for example, uh, their techniques like particle swarm optimization or genetic algorithm, they do not need the gradient. So even if you're, you know, if the function is highly nonlinear and, mm -hmm. and it doesn't have uh, continuous gradient throughout the space, we can still still use it. However, the caveat is it means uh, these techniques like genetic algorithm uh, need a lot of forward simulation. So I need to do the function evaluation a lot of, lot of times. And if we can have numerical simulations of uh, the robot that is fast enough and predictive enough, then I think we will have a viable shot at using genetic algorithm and other AI-based techniques in, in designing these robots. Mm -hmm. That's great. So if I ask you where there are any direction you thought would work out very well, but empirical result proved otherwise something else. 
let's let's think about that. Um, we, we so we have you know, we have tried a few things and some sometimes they do not work very well. Um, so so going back to our previous question about genetic algorithm, uh, we have actually looked into using similar techniques for controlling and designing some of the robots and then the bottleneck we found out was that the you know the simulations are not fast and predictive enough yet to 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 be used in conjunction with genetic algorithm so that in part motivated us to go back to just a modeling part and try to come up with better and enhanced models mm -hmm. um, so i would say that we're, we're even though we are making we are making some progress, but still we are in the infancy of modeling soft robots, I think, and there's a lot of work uh, that can be done. And once we're successful with this, I think this will open up a lot of new avenues in control and design and optimization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I've asked you how do you see the trade-off between the model you're doing and the data, since you highlight that maybe your work can be leverage the control of self-robot. But still the question is, we don't fully understand how the self-robot behaves or the physics happening. And and using black box model sometimes is risky because you don't know what, what do you expect. How do you see the trade-offs? Yes. So I personally think that whenever it is possible to build a model using physics-based data, uh, that's the best way of going about that. Uh, whenever it is reasonably possible uh, to, to do that, we should do that. So for example, if I know that my material is inelastic, then I should just use physics to do that. Mm -hmm. However, there will be cases where we just simply don't know the exact behavior of the model. And in those cases, I think we should uh, go to experimental data. Now, a full simulation is not just the material model itself, but rather it's a combination of geometry, the material and external forces. And uh, I think we should take a combined approach where we try to use the best of the both worlds. So whenever possible, we try to use physics and whenever it's not possible, we try to use uh, experimental data. And the good thing, the reason I mentioned neural networks in the past is because if I can train the neural networks using the experimental data, I can very easily uh, integrate them in my model uh, because neural networks are differentiable and you know they're well they're differentiable if the activation function is properly chosen. So that that is very exciting to us. But uh, to summarize, I wouldn't go just for the physics itself or just for the data itself mm -hmm. i would rather try to combine uh, both of them yeah that's an interesting point of view yeah so if i ask you if you can tell me we're closing the end we have a couple of questions what would be the mm -hmm. biggest technological roadblocks for soft robotics in a short term and long term in general i think in the, in the short term um say in the next five years or so uh getting simulations and experiments to match and be in harmony with one another that is a roadblock and you know we have discussed the series of challenges uh, that we are trying to fix but you know, if we can get that if we have good modeling tools uh, as well as good experimental tools and we can put it together we can very easily get uh, fully autonomous functional uh, soft robots. But it is going to take time. I mean, you know, if, if we look at look back uh, in our history, the way fracture mechanics was developed, the mm. way it, uh, different laws of fatigue was developed, it took a really long time. People did experiments for years and years, and it took more than a more than a century uh, to get where we are now and even today a lot of these laws things like Paris law uh, 
are actually empirical. Uh, they have been built on 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 empirical data. So even though you know, we are progressing, it'll probably take some time. But you know, I'm very excited that we do have a lot of the tools that we were kind of overlooking. So we were not using. We were kind of just focusing on mechanics and robotics. We were not looking out to machine learning and computer graphics. It looks like these communities have tools that can be that can be very useful. Yeah. Over the long run, uh, getting robots, like having building robots that are as efficient as an octopus or or cheetah, that could be uh, very challenging. And it is not just it's not just a single challenge, but rather a combination of challenges. One of them, I think, is just is, is power. We have to power these robots, but we can't take up uh, like five meter by five meter space to just to have the battery. Mm -hmm. right? So we have to have compact batteries that are that doesn't need recharging every thirty minutes or so. So getting to that point will be extremely challenging. Uh, in rigid, more in, in the conventional rigid robotics, you know, like things like Boston, Boston Dynamics, they have they have uh, made some very good progress. So they're uh, quadrupeds and humanoid robots that can actually walk and move more or less autonomously. If I want to take that progress and want to build robots that are just as agile, but as soft as octopus that it can squeeze through a cylinder of two centimeter diameter, um, that I think will take some time. Mm -hmm. That's uh, also important point, yeah. So uh, I would like to ask you how we can enable more inclusive culture around competitive ideas. For example, that some academics tend to establish strong beliefs about their other field that come off as arrogance and elitism as well, and discouraging exploration of ideas out of mainstream. So I think that's challenging because sometimes we have to secure funding or seeking grants, and there is mm -hmm. a competition, severe competition. But at the yes. same time, we want to ensure that you are we have intellectual inclusiveness as well because sometimes it's a tricky if you have a new ideas of course for numerical simulation or this is stream sometimes it's, yeah. it's a challenging to prove uh, what you're doing because maybe you yeah. threatening threatening other research group that's what happening maybe i don't know if you agree with that but it's something mm -hmm. we have already for, for my question to you how we can enable more inclusive culture around competitive ideas and super robotics for example yeah that's it so th that's actually a problem not only unique to soft robotics I mean, it's kind of a problem uh, throughout and i would even argue that in engineering and robotics and computer science like uh, funding is a lot easier than you know in social science and, and mm. psychology and history but even then in engineering we see that there's so much competition uh that it kind of prevents uh inclusiveness and, and progress as well and to be honest, I, I think we just have to be better humans. So mm. I would say that uh, we can try to take baby steps. We can just say that, okay, I will make my simulation code open source and people will be able to use it for free. Or I will make my design open source and people will be uh, able to use it for free. Or I will build a few soft robotic prototypes and will you know, give it to high school students or, or you know, or undergraduates to, to work with that. I think, I, think, I think we can start uh, taking these baby steps. Then when it comes to uh, things like funding and the competitive nature of the academia, for that, uh, we will probably need changes in policy. And I don't know how, how uh, feasible it is in the, in the short term. Uh, we are kind of, incur we are almost demand that 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 you have to publish and publish regardless of what the result looks like so we mm -hmm. have so many papers with incremental advances and uh, with every new increment you know people are giving their actuator a new name that you know my I have come up with a with little incremental advance but they're they're 
Sidek have have invented actuator named Skynet or something like this. Um, and in addition, uh, the the culture of academia is publication oriented. Now, if I look at the the way we are publishing, uh, that can also be improved a little bit as well. So recently, uh, well, not recently, but over the past few years, we have archive where we can make our results freely and publicly available mm -hmm. as well, that we can, we can make this available. So we can try to use archive a bit more and and uh, make the results available to the, to the public. Uh, beyond that, uh, beyond these little changes like making making uh, code available, making um, designs available. Uh, beyond that, uh, I think it just needs to be like a significant changes in policy. And I don't know exactly how it'll it'll come. If we look at space race in you know, 1950s, 60s, 70s, where there was like a compelling need or like a compelling national prestige to send people to the moon, that resulted in a series of inventions that really changed humanity. Uh, something like that, uh, you know, hopefully, could come and spur innovation in robotics. However, then again, you know, the the uh, space race was a result of two rivaling superpowers and there could have been doomsday anytime. So I don't know if we should take, we should try to have the new space race, but the outcome of the space race was very good. So if you have you know, something like that, where we have good uh, advocacy from the government and the industry uh, in, in improving robotics, I think, I think that will be great. Yeah, that's a good point. So, as you leader for the group, um, how you ensure the development of robotics is beneficial to the community or humanity? You have project for four or five years, and you set the goals. How you make sure that what you're doing is beneficial to the community at the end of the day? What is the matrix you set, or how you make sure this happen? Yes. So. We will typically we will try to when we are working on something we will try to have an end goal. So for example, let's say we are talking about uh, bacteria-inspired robot. The end goal is uh, we will have very small, self-contained autonomous robots that can be miniaturized and uh, that hopefully can be used for things like underwater underwater inspection or structural health monitoring, or even you know, farther down the line, they can be sent in human bloodstream to do manipulation. Mm -hmm. So given that end goal, we're trying to develop a series of tools that will help us reach that end goal. So for example, we're trying to come up with modeling tools so that I can predictively understand the buckling dynamics of the bacteria, then I will have to come up with, with fabrication, product fabrication strategy and a control scheme so that I can properly control these robots. And then uh, once I have a preliminary prototype, which will be a few centimeters in size, I will have to then go to somebody who who is an expert in, in you know, micro nano manufacturing so that we can make them even smaller. So even though it is a longer term thing, but if we have a clear end goal, uh, I think we can we, we can make uh, soft robotics uh, useful to the to the community uh, community. Now on the other side, in addition to the application of, of soft robotics, you know, Another, another way would be to just to make a lot of these tools accessible to people and uh, encourage students to get involved more and more in, in soft robotics, even, even with the simple prototypes that we have. Maybe they will have some ideas and they will have some insights that can be very useful. Uh, an anecdote, we, are, we recently started working with uh, 
robotics in agriculture. Uh, so like a, an autonomous robot that can go around in the in a, in a field and it can detect weeds, which are harmful plants, and then spray pesticide on that. So that project has a very immediate economic impact. Uh, this is in contrast with some of the projects in soft robotics that have a more longer term uh, plan. However, hopefully eventually, you know, all of them will find their application in the real world and will be beneficial to the humanity. Mm -hmm. That's a good point as well, to be considered. Yeah. Um, do you think ego is important for the researcher? Well, I mean, I was going to say no, and, and uh, I, I think, well, of course, it, it'll mean what we mean by ego, but I, th I think we should always be uh, mindful that we can be wrong and I can be wrong and mm. should be willing to listen to the feedback of an inexperienced student or, or researcher. Having said that, um, there could be cases where you know you should stand your ground. I mean, I can think of of policy making, for example. You know, engineers aren't really uh, aren't really the policy makers. They kind of give the politicians uh, data, and presumably the politicians are using the data to to come up with policy and. And what, and I'm thinking of, of the coronavirus and the pandemic and you know the many different policies that we have around the world uh, surrounding this this pandemic. Uh, in these cases, I think sometimes we have to be uh, engineers can be or you know, scientists and engineers can be. It may not hurt to be a bit egotistical and or rather I should say it may not hurt to stand your ground and, and, and give honest feedback instead of just trying to please the, the superiors. Yeah, that's a very important point. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. And if I ask you, what is the most important quality you have gained while you work in academia? Something you have to maintain? Yeah. I think if, if I look back to my PhD and, and postdoc career, I would say, uh, uh, learning new tools and and uh, using them to using them to build something um, that I think is that helped me mm -hmm. uh, and my work is in, at the intersection of uh, theory and, and experiments. So we are trying to build tools and modeling tools, and we are building experimental prototypes, and we are trying to show that okay, these tools can be used in in uh, in real life and this, in this type of work i think you know, the ability to to the ability to hack different tools and put them together to to build a functioning prototype that uh, was very much useful to me i should also say that when i talk about tools i just don't mean um like uh, programming or, or or hardware i do mean uh things like photography and and communication skills and writing skills and so on. All of these are, are very useful, especially for incoming students, uh, incoming grad students, I think. Uh, we tend to, those students can uh, tend to underestimate the need for, for uh, the need of good uh, communication skills or even a good photography skills. Uh, so, the reason I'm talking about photography is because you know, whenever you have experimental prototypes, you're trying to take uh, good images of that. And the first thing when you open up a paper is the image, right? That's kind of the first thing oftentimes that will that'll catch your eyes. Yeah. So uh, that, so not only the hard technical skills, but also the soft people's skills are, are necessary. Yeah, that's a good advice. Yeah. And uh, finally, what is well, the best advice was given to you as a person or professionally and was a life changing for you? Um, when it comes to advice, I think somebody have unfortunately I've forgotten his name. Uh, I was at a faculty, prospective faculty workshop and and one 
uh, one of the instructors told us that you should never expect your students to be like you. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a faculty member, I think that is very important to keep in mind that I'm not good at every single thing. I'm not, I guess I'm, you know, I'm good at modeling. I may be good at programming, but you know, I, I may not be good at machining and milling. So it is important to let uh, the students and postdocs explore their own interests a little bit and try to find out uh, what is it that the student or the postdoc is really good at. And then mm -hmm. try to modify the project a little bit so that they can find it interesting. Now, I should also say that it is not always possible to modify or change the project that is because uh, there are stipulations from the funding funding agency and so on so the students and postdocs should also keep that in mind as well that you know if somebody is paying for for this research so we can't really change everything however we should try to come up with a mutually agreeable solution where uh, we deliver what we promised but we also keep in mind the professional development of the students mm -hmm. That's also very important advice for many young researchers. Thanks so much, Khalid. It was really very informative discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.